Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco Podcast. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to Philip Daladakis, Chairman and Managing Partner at Horizontus, but probably better known to this audience as a Minister for Small Business Innovation and Trade in Victoria. G'day, Philip. Great to be with you, James. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of a tidbit that not many people know, but back in my early 20s at university, I was involved in running nightclubs and I was known to get on the uh, podium and do some dancing. So it's nice to do some commercial disco oh, very good. and not just in the club. Commercial disco is, is short for commercial discovery, obviously. You know, we have a lot of not-for-profits out there. We are champions of the commercial. Like, we want to see Australian business do well. You've been a cabinet minister prior to that, a staffer in the federal government. But I'm just going to start by asking, do you miss politics? Yeah, so I don't think anybody goes into public life without a love of public policy, or at least they really shouldn't. And so... Just because you leave public office doesn't mean that appetite to contribute to the public good goes. So when you see decisions being made or, or decisions taken and issues faced, you're always wondering what you would do still if you were there and faced with those same dilemmas and choices. So yes, there are times that I miss it and there are times that I definitely don't. And I think that I'm a, a lot healthier in body, mind and soul for not being there any longer. One of the great things about politics or being a politician, I guess, is that people feel free to share their opinions with you. Surely you <laughs> must miss that, having people tell you what to do. I still get people freely expressing their opinions with me now, James, and uh, it doesn't stop, let me tell you. For those people that know who I am and know what my background was, I'm always asked questions about current affairs, but also given advice about what the government should be doing as if I was still there. The irony, of course, is that I worked, and you'd remember this at the time, but I worked for Senator Conroy as his uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for a period under the Gillard government. And people always misunderstood Stephen, and it was a great pleasure to work with him because Stephen was as committed to public policy and public policy outcomes as anyone that I've ever come across in the executive of government at state or federal level that I've been associated with. He was always regarded as sort of the hard man or the powerful man of the Labor government. And people always misunderstood that he used that power to implement good public policy. It wasn't power for power's sake. And, it, uh, you know, he and I still maintain a really strong friendship and relationship today that has been enhanced since I left his office. He was a tough guy to work for, don't get me wrong, but uh, it was an extraordinarily rewarding time as well. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I mean, say what you want about Stephen Conroy, but he got a lot done in the time that he was in that role and, you know, has a legacy in the MBN that's really quite extraordinary. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about your time as a minister and then we'll move on to other stuff, you know, the contemporary stuff happening today and I'm, I'm really interested to hear your views. So it was very heady time. I think you were appointed in July 2015. Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister later that year. 
the innovation and science agenda and there was all the stuff that you were doing in Victoria. There was the, the push at the federal level. In terms of startup land, it was all going on, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a really challenging time, not because of Malcolm Turnbull ascending to the prime ministership, but over the same time that I was the innovation and digital economy minister here in Victoria, I had seven different federal ministers responsible for the same portfolio in that time. And that was probably the most challenging thing in terms of trying to get some kind of harmony between state and federal government for policy. And I remember that every time a new minister would come out, I would uh, ask the department in my office to dust off the previous letter that I'd sent to the old minister, update it for current events. And it was almost exactly the same letter that I sent to each new minister. And I, I can almost remember the content in it right today even though we're talking about events that happened you know, eight years ago from the beginning. And one of the things that I talked about, well, there were two things that I spoke about in the letter amongst the issues, but one of them was skills and training. But on the flip side of skills and training, the ability of us to, at that point, it was then called a 457 visa to try and attract talent, software engineering, and related high-skilled jobs that we were short of here in Australia and in Victoria in particular, because I was always of the view that if we could encourage employers to come to Melbourne and Victoria to work, then we would be able to scale up the sector. And the more people we could attract here, the more businesses that would set up here and it would become almost this self-fulfilling prophecy that build it and they will come. And then businesses would be attracted to be here because the talent was here. Then more talent would come here because there were more opportunities. That would lead to wage growth and the, the requisite benefits. So that was the first issue. The second one was that there was a bit of tax law that was implemented in the state of California in, in the United States, because uh, unlike Australia, the states in the United States can implement their own tax laws. And what it was, was it enabled founders that exited from their startup a grace period of, I think it was three years, to reinvest part of their capital gain into new businesses, new startups. And then they would be given a CGT exemption from that investment. And I really like that as a policy setting because, James, you've been around the industry without denigrating your age much longer than I have. And I'm pretty confident that you'll agree with me that founders, when they exit, they don't take their money, stick it in a bank, and then go and sink a pina collateral or two on the beach in Hawaii. What they do is they look for their next investment. They look for their next opportunity and their next startup to uh, be a part of. And so to encourage them and to encourage and foster that change of culture, I thought was hugely important. We still haven't got that right. The other one also that I mentioned in the letter was the patent box that you would be across from the United Kingdom, which uh, was not just about creating IP here, but then developing that into manufacturing as well and providing incentives to those businesses. So they're just uh, a number of the issues that I can still remember writing to, as I said, seven of my counterparts over the time that I was minister. I think uh, there's a couple of those issues that are still alive right now, right? I mean, certainly on skills and the ability to import skills has been a, a I wouldn't say it's a vexed issue, but like skills generally has been tough. Skills in, in tech and startups has been tough. Let's talk about Launch Vic just for a minute. We were talking just before we got on. That, that's a lasting legacy of yours that's still going. Yeah. and. 
When you take a moment to reflect on what you were able to achieve, the first thing that's really important is that you don't achieve anything in a silo. So, you know, a shout out firstly to the men and women in the Victorian Public Service that helped to both design and then implement the policies that we were responsible for. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that Launch Vic was really a groundbreaker in Australian political life. And I know that there were ministers in other states that watched very closely what we were doing and have tried to mimic and implement something similar in their own jurisdiction subsequently. And if you have a look at the legacy that it's left, and it's still operating under the wonderful leadership of Dr. Kate Cornick and her team, and Lee Jasper is the current chair of Launch Vic. And by the way, we've had some great chairs. The inaugural chair of Launch Vic was no less than Ahmed Fahur. That's right. Who I've known for a long time. And uh, I don't want to speak out of school, but I remember having a chuckle because Tim Pallas, who's still the treasurer of Victoria at the time, when I was able to put that board together, came to me and he said, how the hell did you get Armoured to agree to chair your organisation? And I said, what do you mean, Tim? And he, Tim said, I've been trying to get him to do stuff for me for ages and I can't get him to do anything. I said, ah, well, there you go. It's the, the power of persuasion. But I'd known Armoured for some time and he was a fantastic chair of Launch Vic and he appointed Kate Cornick. And I remember at the time when we went through the appointment process, of course, Kate had previously worked for Senator Conroy federally. And Kate and I had not crossed paths federally. She had worked well before I joined Stephen's office. But at the time, the opposition had somehow believed that because she and I had shared the same employer being Senator Conroy, that I had directed Armoured to appoint her in the role as CEO of Launch Vic. The irony, of course, is two things. One, if anyone knows Ahmed Fahul, you don't direct him to do anything. That's the first thing. And the second thing, I remember Ahmed coming to me during the recruitment process and saying, Philip, I've got somebody that you're going to think is fantastic, but I'm just going to let the process play out and we'll see how it goes and I'm not going to tell you. So I actually didn't know that Kate was even a contender for Launchvik. In fact, I'd put somebody else up as a possible chief executive and that person was subsequently unsuccessful, which goes to show that there are people out there that think that there's a far greater level of conspiracy in appointments and work between a minister and their organisations or uh, GBEs that report to them than there actually is. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. I had forgotten that Ahmed Fahul was the founding chair, is that right? He was the founding chair and, of course, he's been appointed to the National Reconstruction Fund Board by uh, Ed Husick, Minister Husick. That's 100%. That in itself is quite fascinating. Just before we get on to the NRF, though, on Launch Vic, there is something to be said for longevity of policy or longevity of an organisation. Like Kate Cornick, you know, as any new organisation, it seemed took a little bit of time to gather momentum, but, you know, years into that role and that organisation rumbling along, it's a little bit interesting. Yeah, it is. And I'd like to think that Launch Vic is much like life. It's a journey. It's not a destination. And so people that think that Launch Vic's time is done or that they've achieved what they've set out to do, I think misunderstand the role that they play in supporting the ecosystem by supporting startups and also designing programs that can help them. Because when you're a startup, you're probably at your most vulnerable point in your commercial life. You are starting out, you don't necessarily have a lot of equity behind you or the vast majority of startups don't. You are strapped both in cash, obviously, but also in resources. 
So you're undertaking a multiple number of roles whilst you're trying to build and scale whatever the product or service is. And then at the same time, you're trying to deal with how do you both pitch into the marketplace, how do you grow aggressively, how do you attract talent, how do you keep talent, et cetera, et cetera. So part of what LaunchFix modus operandi was in the early days was to provide a whole lot of support through incubators and accelerator programs, which Kate did very successfully. But some of the ones that we did that I'm most proud of, and there was one, I'm not too proud to admit that I think when I launched it, there was a tear or two in my eye. And that was an accelerator program that we launched for refugees. And for people that don't know much about my family story, my mother was born in Shanghai, China, because her parents were refugees that fled Nazi Germany. My grandfather, having been in a work camp from 1935 to mid-38, Dachau, which was actually the very first camp that was built. So she was born in Shanghai and she came out to Australia as a refugee herself with her family. And so the ability to support people that are even more marginalized within our community was something that from a public policy point of view was intrinsic to who we were as a government and who I was as a public policy maker and also as a person. That's great. I'm always interested, like programs like that. One thing I wish we could hear more of is just follow-up data on where people ended up. I guess that's a, a human interest thing. But people who go to an incubator like that, what happens? What's next? I don't know whether you've had Kate on your program or not, James, but that might be something that you can reach out to her and, and invite her onto the program. And actually, when you do so, ask her to bring a couple of examples with her about success stories from those programs. And there are a lot of them. And that's one of the really pleasing things because the other thing is that people that will be naturally listening to this pod understand better than anybody that success or failure, again, is an outcome. It's not the journey itself. And and I remember as a minister, as if it was yesterday, one of the things that I would always say is that if you're going to fail, you always fail fast, but also don't be afraid of failure. Learn from it. If you keep repeating the same mistakes, then there's an issue. But if you fall down, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep going. And you know it's such a great mindset to have, not just within the startup or within your commercial opportunity, but also with life. And it's something that you know I haven't always probably followed personally, but I've tried to always remind myself of each stage as I set up our businesses as well. Early days were hard going, but things are starting to really pick up. And you just need to remind yourself that that's what you've got to do. You've got to be all in. You've got to be all in all of the time and take the opportunities when they come and take the hits when they come as well and learn from them. 100% on that. Let's move to contemporary policy. I want to ask you about the National Reconstruction Fund we mentioned before, and it is very interesting that Ahmed Fahor brings that launch experience with him into that role together with a lifetime's career worth of other experiences. But on the NRF, Can we put it in the context also of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and this kind of response to change geopolitical circumstances? We had a conference yesterday. We talked a lot about this stuff. And um, one of the speakers, or in fact, a series of speakers just said, this is a good start, but it can't be seen as a finish. $15 billion is a big chunk of change in the Australian context historically but in the context of what it's seeking to achieve, maybe not. What do you think? Yeah, so there's different ways that you can look at it. You can look at it as a glass half full or a glass half empty. I've known Ed for a long time. I would consider him a friend of mine. 
I think what he has created with the NRF is nothing less than uh, outstanding. When you consider that the NRF's major goals are potential equity, loans and guarantees, I think from a policy construct, it's very brave and very bold, but I think it's one that I absolutely support. And the important thing is there are going to be companies that they will invest in that the government will do their dough in. And that is okay, right? And there will be opposition MPs that will then point to a failure and go, aha, you're wasting public funds. Well, let me just digress for a moment. And it's a a story when I led a trade mission to Israel back in, I think it was 2016 or 2017. Forgive me for getting the dates wrong. But I remember speaking to the, the then chief scientist of Israel, who I knew quite well. And in front of the delegation, I thought I was going to big note myself, James, and I thought I'd ask him this question about how does he measure ROI on the businesses that they invested in as the chief scientist? And he said, in front of the room full of people, he turned to me, and I won't do it in my Israeli accent because it will embarrass myself far more than the story will. And he said, Philip, it actually it is not one of my KPIs what the ROI for the business is. He said, you're looking at the investment the wrong way. He said, the key things to note for an investment, are we investing in new areas that we don't see investment in? Are we investing in areas that have low participation or low market failure? Are we encouraging growth? Are we encouraging development? Are we encouraging research? And he said, that's how I measure it. And I'll give you another example. Everyone knows the story of A Better Place and how it started in Shire Agassiz and how it was really ahead of its time in terms of setting up electricity charging networks for EVs, etc. But what people don't realise is that that was one of the areas that was invested in, but out of A Better Place dying came a half a dozen new startups in Israel itself that are still operating today. And they wouldn't have been there today if the original investment in a better place hadn't have occurred and potentially it then fail, allowing people to move forward with their own ideas and their own opportunities to pursue. In much the same way that that's what I look at with the construction of the NRF. You've got a wonderful public policy. And let's be honest, $15 billion sounds a lot to you and me. But in the scheme of a federal budget, $15 billion is a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, right? And that's not to be flippant with public funds and how they're spent. It's to acknowledge that it's a massive investment for us, but overall in the life of a government, it's a small investment at that point. But nevertheless, it can do amazing things. And again, I can't be prouder of the work that Minister Husey and his team have done and the opportunities that that's going to provide. And I know that there are sectors that they've identified, I think six or seven sectors from memory that they've identified, including medical research, technology, et cetera. And the only thing that I'm going to say, which is slightly controversial, is that I hope that the NRF does not look at investing in organisations that are spun out of universities predominantly. There is a lot of funding across the, the sector for university researchers, and it would annoy me to no end if they try and seek the NRF's $15 billion as another playground because they already have access to funds. And what I want to see is the NRF focus on other organisations and other people that don't necessarily have that same level of support through the university system and access to funds as well. Oh, yes, controversial. 
you could get killed for saying things like that in Canberra, I think. So let me ask you this. I mean, obviously you've heard that there must have been talk of universities angling to get some of this NRF money, but even having said that... Oh, it's not just NRF, James. I see that in Victoria with some of the creations here by the Victorian government in relation to Breakthrough Victoria, which is its own $1 billion funding agency. Yeah. So my comment... Can I sure? Can I just just explain this to me though? If if there's if there's spinouts from a university, they're commercial enterprises. They're literally PTY limited companies. Why shouldn't they? Well, it's not a reason why they shouldn't. It's the question is: Have they not got access to significant balance sheets through the universities that are often significant shareholders in those businesses that they spin out? So they often spin them out for a range of reasons, as you and I know, James. And by the way, I'm not begrudging researchers and the work that they do. What I'm saying is that, example in Victoria, University of Melbourne and Monash University are two of the wealthiest universities in the Victorian landscape. It would be the same if you went to Sydney or NSW in New South Wales, UQ in Queensland, SA, et cetera, et cetera. And we can go right through the Federation to identify which universities are flush with funds. All I'm saying is when you've got shareholders like Monash and Melbourne, and I'm using, again, the Victorian context because that's where I live, they have significant balance sheets. And if they don't have access to funds, fine, look for somewhere else. But don't crowd out a funding pool like the NRF or Breakthrough Victoria when other people don't have access to those shareholders. That's all. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I guess we're all waiting for a little bit more detail from the investment mandates for the NRF and we'll have a better understanding of of where those decisions get made. And obviously, they're independent decisions, aren't they? And presumably, based on they need to make a commercial return. That's the whole point, right? But how exciting that there's going to be an ability for taxpayers to potentially have an equity stake in the next CSL or the next Canva. Fantastic. I think it's brilliant. And I think the fact that Ed Husick got it up as quickly as he did, I think is really quite incredible. Answer me this, right? So with IRA or the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act in the US, that is considered a response to change. Strategic circumstances, strategic competition, whatever you want to call it. The NRF is a response to kind of the hollowing out of manufacturing over a decade or so, right? So Do you think, given this imperative among our friends around the world to build capability and to build it fast, is that response to strategic change circumstances still on the way? Yeah, I would have thought so. What we saw through COVID, of course, is challenges within our own manufacturing supply chain for medical equipment, PPE, etc., And I think what the government under Prime Minister Albanese has identified is that we need to be able to do more at home than what we've outsourced previously. Now, that's a little bit different from the NRF because we're talking about new technology, new investment and new opportunities. But nevertheless, manufacturing sovereignty, manufacturing opportunity here at home is something that we should be pursuing as an issue of national strategic importance and also for our own national security. National security doesn't always have to be just simply about defence. It has to be about the ability for us to make things, to build things, to create things here at home and not rely on global supply chains. And so I think what we've seen in the United States is that that focus, by the way, also 
one of the concerns out of the, the IRF was the potential drawdown on talent. There was the very real concern when that was moved in the United States that it would draw talent away from Australia and it would keep talent at home in the United States. And of course, the world's never been smaller for talent to be able to move around and pursue opportunities. So again, what we're seeing here are policy constructs designed to support the work we do at home, but also to try and, I believe, to try and attract the best and brightest from overseas that want a different lifestyle that we can provide them here in Australia that they can't necessarily get in the United States or in other areas. All right, I'm talking to Philip Daladakis, Chairman and Managing Partner at Horizontus and uh, former Cabinet Minister in the Victorian Government. Let's move on to, you know, we talk about national security and capability and all that stuff. AUKUS and dual-use technologies like quantum AI, all those good things. I ask a lot of people this and I haven't really got an answer that I think satisfies. But, yeah, defence is making huge investments. This government has an NRF. How do we look at that building of capability in areas like quantum and AI and robotics and remote automation that have clear dual use? How do we do that without kind of letting things either fall through the cracks or get subpar funding or funding not to a level it needs? Well, it's a challenging question, James. It's not challenging because of the policy construct, but because of the policy lead time to be able to get to a solution. So if we look at, for example, and we use AUKUS as the example in this, and I think that's probably representative of the issues around quantum and, and AI as well, although they're a little bit more contemporary in our discussion than what AUKUS will be. You need to work out almost like an algebraic equation, Z equals X plus Y. We know what Z is. Z is a nuclear-powered submarine that has been designed, but the design features and the manufacturing has yet to be created. So that's the X plus Y. To get to X plus Y, we're going to know that we're going to need, for example, submariners that have that expertise to deal with the nuclear submarine in a way that our Collins-class submarines that are diesel-powered do not. So there is different skill sets. So we're going to need to create a range of educational opportunities for submariners to be able to go through. And right now we're sending people into the US, is my understanding, to go through that process. We're going to need to create that at home. We're then also going to need to have a look at the supply chains. We're going to need to build those supply chains out. We're going to need to support those businesses. And by the way, we're not talking about just one support by building some bricks and mortar and saying, off you go. There are going to be security concerns about their software settings, how they establish their networks. As silly as this sounds, and let me digress. When I used to speak to small businesses as part of my small business ministerial responsibilities, I would routinely challenge the audience to tell me whether or not they ran their one laptop that had their customer data, their financial data, their CRM, and all of their process together. And I remember after I gave this one speech, and it was in the context, by the way, of cyber safety. And I gave this speech and I asked people in the audience to put their hands up if they did this. And as you could imagine, not many people put their hands up to identify that they had some issues. But I had uh, one gentleman in the audience who I saw two weeks later, and I hadn't known that he was in the audience. And he, he said to me two weeks later that as a result of my presentation in that audience, he went back to his office and asked those same questions. 
And then as a result of the answers that he got, implemented some changes immediately about what they did and how they did it. So if I come back to sort of the point that I was making is that the support that we're going to need to be able to provide businesses as they go through these processes is going to be significant. And we need to be able to build those capabilities out and we need to be able to build that support in. And only by doing that will we then get a complete totality of picture about what we need to do and how we do it. So to come back to your question about quantum and AI, slightly different issue. Just as I was a little controversial about not investing in spin-outs from universities for uh, accessing NRF and uh, Breakthrough Victoria funds, on this point, we need to be investing more with the universities and saying to the universities, we are going to bankroll across the sector. Here's a pool of funds. You can all bid into the pool of funds. And we're going to need to make sure that we have a policy that is complete across the depth and breadth of our country, both mainland and Tasmania. And what I mean by that is that under the leadership of Craig Davies, when he was at uh, the Australian Cyber Security Centre and was their inaugural CEO, one of the things that Craig did is he took the Box Hill Institute of TAFE Cyber Security Program and he implemented it nationally as the best cybersecurity platform and used it for all other organizations. We need to do something similar with AI and quantum, where universities and researchers are not competing with each other for funds, but they can just bid into a pool of funds and also be able to share their work. And by sharing their work, what I mean is build on each other's work and not have 15 people all doing the one thing, but have them bidding on work that complement each other as part of a planned progression. Interesting. Yeah, I remember Craig's work. That was really something, and uh, you didn't need to put Box Hill on the map, but that work certainly highlighted that safe I'll segue here, I guess. So talk about people competing against each other. With AUKUS and these change, strategic, regional competition, all the rest of it, is this the moment where Team Australia really starts to work? I mean, through the period when you were first minister and... Uh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull was doing his ideas boom. The states seemed to compete with each other. There was kind of a, a land grab for startup. There was a land grab for federal funding, all this kind of stuff. So how do we get the federation working together? I mean, you tell me, maybe the competition's a good thing and they should keep competing, or maybe there's a Team Australia effort. What would you say? Some people will think this is a bit of a cop-out, and I'm happy for you to take me to task if you think it is too, James, but I think it's a bit of column A and a bit of column B. So I think Again, Team Australia is very important because we've only got a finite amount of resources, both in terms of financial and personnel. So we can't be bidding against each other to bring person A from New South Wales down to Victoria, person B from South Australia into Western Australia, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, I love states competing with each other to create programs and policies. And by that, you better believe that when I did something in relation to Launch Vic here. I know that Matt Keane was watching in New South Wales. I know that then Victor Dominello was watching in New South Wales. I know that Kate Jones responded in Queensland, right? They are all great things for the sector and for the industry. I used to always say, I used to get asked this question ad nauseum as a minister about Team Australia in particular. And it never annoyed me, but it always gave me this opportunity to say, in relation to the cybersecurity threat, no doubt... That, and I used this example then. I'm not sure I can really use it anymore. But back then, I used to always say, 
you wouldn't expect Optus and Telstra to hold hands and contribute their own response in real time because they see it as a competitive advantage and they still do. Why should you be a customer of one telco over another? Well, because they're going to say, we're going to protect your data much better than the other one can. And as I said, I used this obviously well before there was the, the breach with Optus. And so just like they see it as a competitive advantage, I always saw what New South Wales or other states were doing from a public policy construct and thought to myself, oh, is that or is that not an interesting public policy? Do we or do we not need to respond? If we did respond, what kind of policy construct could we implement that would be better, both in terms of the policy itself, but also the outcomes that we were seeking? So I don't think we should ever try and strip away that intrinsic competition between jurisdictions for both talent, but also for public policy in terms of public good and the development of our industry sectors. But what we should be certainly doing is making sure that where there are centres of excellence, we don't try and build 14 different centres of excellence in the same area. Again, a bit like I was saying before about making sure that we bid into a pool of funds and researchers do to complement the work that they're doing, but not replicate the work that they're doing. All right, I'm going to finish up on this question. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a, a very fascinating conversation. I guess I just want to ask, from 2015 till now, you know, there's lots going on in lots of different areas, lots of progress, a few setbacks, all that stuff. Is there anything that's particularly surprised you? And where we are now as a nation in terms of what we're doing in industry policy, are we kind of ahead of where you thought we would be? Or what's happened in that time? if you reflect on it, that's interesting. I think the elephant in the room with that question, James, is what impact COVID has had, not just on us as a society and as individuals, but what impact that had on the development of the policies that we've both been articulating and talking about today, and also that were being developed both around the country and federally in terms of public policy. I've got three young children. My oldest one's now completing year 12 this year. But if I look back at that time, My two daughters were year seven and nine going through the very first year of COVID. And there's no doubt that for them as children, there were two years of as almost lost years in terms of their social progression and their integration into society. Now, the beauty of that is that as kids, they're pretty resilient and they've got through that. At least mine have. Fortunately, there will be others that have not fed as well. And I wish them all the best as they develop and hopefully get better from there. But That's been the big issue for me, I think took us back four or five years. So we lost two years of productivity and development, and I think it took us back five years. And I think that what we're seeing now with the change of government, and I'm not saying this as somebody that used to to wave the flag Team Red, but I think we're now seeing that investment and that contest of ideas again. And I don't think that we as a country can ever lose out when you've got a contest of ideas, good or bad ideas, as long as there's a contest of ideas. And I think we're starting to get that now. And I think that the COVID response robbed us of that. And to be completely fair to the government under Prime Minister Morrison and his cabinet team, I don't think that that's any different for them. They became so fixated with that COVID response that that dominated their public policy thinking as it did for state jurisdictions, not just here in Australia, but for governments around the world. I think that's a very interesting viewpoint. I think whether you're an individual or a business or a national government, state government, a lot of inward thinking in terms of are my people safe? Am I able to continue my business? How am I contacting my customers? 
it's interesting now that we poke our heads up and, and you see things with a new set of eyes, I think, now that we're out and running. So hopefully we accelerate. Yeah, so I'll leave you with this thought. I, like any politician before me, have often used the, the line or the saying that you should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think through COVID, we lost that opportunity and we were only either walking or chewing gum. We weren't able to do both. And that's because people were so focused on the threat that COVID would have to us as a community. It was the great unknown, initially anyway. And what the public response setting could have dire consequences for us as a community going forward. And I think in hindsight, there was the public policy response, but we lost our focus on what does this mean for us as a community and as a society and as individuals, as you pointed out, and businesses. And that continuity, we lost that continuity. All right, Philip Daladakis, thanks so much for being on the Commercial Disco. And uh, I should have mentioned, I bumped into you on the factory floor at Gilmore Space Technologies as um, Anthony Albanese was going through. I haven't even asked you about the rest of your business ventures. Well, you'll just have to have me on the program again one day, James, and I'd be delighted to come back, but uh, we'll give the listeners a break for some time, I suspect. All right. Anyway, good on you. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation, and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.